and welcome back to the CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Molly Rao, with my co-host, Jessica Rickert. Today's podcast features Troy Hicks. Troy's work centers around how to integrate technology into your literacy instruction. Troy shares the examples of tools, products, and instructional frameworks that tie technology to the great literacy instruction you are already providing. Well, hi, Troy. Welcome. We're so excited to have you. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thanks, Jessica. Troy Hicks. I am a professor of English and education at Central Michigan University. I'm entering my 15th year as a teacher educator, uh, where before that I did uh, graduate school at Michigan State and also did my undergraduate at Michigan State. And I spent uh, four years as a middle school language arts teacher. So heading into decade three of education uh, at this point, which is kind of amazing to say. Um, And then, uh, yeah, I also direct the Chippewa River Writing Project, which is the site of the National Writing Project uh, at CMU. We began in 2009, so we are also in our second decade as well, and uh, looking forward to doing a number of uh, virtual professional development events uh, throughout the school year, Uh, but also looking forward to hopefully being back face-to-face as uh, 2021 and 22 academic year gets underway. So I know one of your topics that you teach on and write about are new literacies in the classroom. Tell us, what does that look like or what are some new literacies? That's a wonderful question to think about because it seems like on the one hand, it's changing every day and all the time we're seeing new tools that come out. We wanna try a new technique. We see a new social media site that we want our students to try to emulate and different projects that they might do and yet, we also think about it and really it hasn't changed all that much, right? We have a sender and we have a messenger or a message and then we have a receiver. And so um, this notion that, um, you know, literacy at the core is about encoding a message, putting it out in the world, and then someone else decodes that message has has stayed relatively stable for uh, quite a few uh, hundred years now. Um, that said, you know, when I think about new literacies, um, I, one of the definitions I'm drawn to lately, uh, NCTE released a, a revised uh, definition of literacy in a digital age, I think uh, in the fall of 2019. And they, there's a phrase in there, I believe it's um, interconnected um, and malleable. And there's one other word that I'm uh, not remembering off the top of my head, but I especially like that idea of um, literacies being malleable. So just because you can use your thumbs to put something on a keyboard or your fingers to uh, type on an actual keyboard or use voice to text dictation and and make a a message to go out on social media, um, you can put words into sentences and sentences into paragraphs, but you also need to know when is it appropriate to put a whole sentence or a whole paragraph or a hashtag or an at reply or use punctuation or not use punctuation. And so it gets to those broader conceptions of code switching and knowing your audience and purpose and knowing the affordances of any one technology. Maybe here I want to include a link, maybe here I want to include an image, maybe here I wanna just record a video rather than typing this out um, or record audio. 
So these um, new literacies require us to be very flexible in a number of different situations. So even though we might be using the same actual skills of, you know, again, putting words into sentences, sentences into paragraphs, it varies um, depending on the technology you're using, the audience you're communicating with, and, and the context uh, in which you find yourself. Do you see that with these new literacies, are high school teachers more fluid or middle school more teachers more fluid with this than elementary just because kids are using it more or does it matter? That's a good question too. I, it's tough to paint broad strokes and to say, yes, I noticed most of my high school colleagues are doing this or most of my middle school colleagues are doing that or elementary colleagues. But I, I would say a couple things. I mean, here the one thing that I would I would note about um, working with elementary colleagues is they often will say things like, oh, how many tools? How much time do I spend on this? You know, what what happens? Where do I, you know, give the kids this or that or the other thing? And and one of the things I say um, at that stage is they probably know a little bit more than what we might give them credit for. And even if they don't, we can be teaching them how to figure out how to use the tools. And you're the one that knows what it means to be a good reader and a good writer, and you're providing those types of foundational skills for them and thinking about what it is um, that you can offer them as a reader and as a listener and as someone who's you know reading their writing and listening to them speak and seeing the digital products they produce. So um, then to carry that forward into like the, the middle school and high school classroom, I, I do see some teachers who are, yes, definitely integrating digital literacies. Like they are having their students compose web pages, create digital videos, um, communicate via social media using some of the norms of social media, um, you know, building uh, documents that are designed to be read on screen. I want you to create something with hyperlinks. I want you to embed a video that you have made. But not everybody, um, to be honest. And again, I, I kind of think about, you know, what is it that we might be able to do to encourage our colleagues to let their students have a little bit more freedom and flexibility. So rather than, oh, you're going to have this massive research project you're presenting at a web page, you know, a month from now, let's build a web page today. Let's just hop into Adobe Spark and let's create something. No pressure, no grades. Let's see what the tool is like. Let's try it out and let's use it. Uh, and then that gives them a little bit more uh, leeway, I guess. They don't, the, the teachers don't feel like they have to know everything about every tool either at that secondary level. And then they also don't have to always be thinking about, oh, I've got this many standards and I've got this many objectives and they have to write a perfect essay with a thesis statement and supporting evidence. No, let, like today, let's just play with the tool a little bit and then let's step back from it and let's think about how to use it in a more critical manner. Um, and again, that's where you are the person. You're the disciplinary expert and you bring a certain perspective about literature or about composition or about speech and communication that you can then help them craft their message in really thoughtful ways. So that was a long-winded way of saying that. I think some educators are doing this very well and willing to kind of give up that freedom or that, you know, give up that control and provide a little bit more freedom. Others, you know, and again, I'm not trying to cast a wide net and say that, you know, we're all terrible, but, you know, I, I would hope that we would be willing to give a little bit more of that freedom and to let the students play with some of these literacies and then incorporate them in a more academically um, uh, 
traditionally academically manner, but using the different tools in different ways. Um, yeah, so those are some thoughts about how I see many teachers using those new literacy practices. Okay, thinking about that idea of hopping in and playing a little bit, I know one thing that some teachers are very concerned about or some districts are very concerned about is just, um, you know, some of the COPA and FERPA and legal concerns when kids are getting into systems and playing around. So do you have some recommended places that teachers can kind of send their kids to play that are usually pretty compliant that, you know, as long as they get the appropriate permissions, those are good places for us to go. Yeah, thanks, Molly. That's a great question too. I am not a lawyer, so I start <laughs> my answer to any question around FERPA and COPA with that. But I mean, what I would say is this. So, so number one, if your district, and, and again, I'm not trying to cast dispersions on all IT directors and superintendents around the country, but let's face it, some are more tightly controlled and constrained than others. Um, you know, if after talking to your district, they're still not willing to budge and then, nope, you have access to Google Suite or Office 365 and that's it and that's all you're using. That first line, I'm like, okay, well then let's think creatively. Like, how could we have students build something in Google Slides that might turn into something like a museum kiosk uh, presentation or a choose your own adventure story? Or uh, we just have them build their own digital portfolio or a digital writer's notebook using Google Slides. So how can we, take those tools that we're constrained and confined to and then use them because we already know they're COPA and FERPA compliant and we don't wanna break the mold and get in trouble. Then at like a second level, I, I would suggest that teachers actually advocate and say, hey, here is a tool. Um, there are things like the student privacy pledge and like California, I think has one of the most robust laws related to student privacy. And there's like a database through the state of California about all all the ed tech tools that are available and whether or not they're compliant with California law, which would then ensure that they're compliant with COPA and FERPA, you go to that and you say, hey, hey, look, I need to use this tool. My students need to use this tool for this reason. And here's here's a place to back, you know, and to say that they're using it. So when I think about the particular tools, which I think uh, was kind of part of your question too, um, you know, Adobe Spark has been made available for free for K-12 uh, education. Um, IT directors can get signed up and get that installed with the single sign-on, so it's secure. Um, you know, of course, there were incidents of what had been termed Zoom bombing, and now Zoom and WebEx and Google Meets and all the other video conferencing services have much better security. Um, but I would I would likely think that we would want to, um, you know, encourage our, our students to uh, be able to communicate in those spaces and teach them how to use those spaces um, in productive ways, rather than just being talked at, teach them how to talk with and collaborate with one another. Um, another set of tools that I find incredibly uh, just really interesting, they're designed for professional journalists, but can be used by students. They're from um, uh, Northwestern University's uh, Night Lab School, uh, or Night Lab with Northwestern School of Journalism. Uh, so um, the Night uh, 
Foundation, which owned a lot of newspapers, has produced all these open source tools called like story maps and timelines. And uh, you can juxtapose images like historical images with contemporary images. So there's a suite of maybe six or eight different tools on that site that I think we can use to teach all the big elements of language arts, narrative, informational, and argument if we want to stick with the big three. Um, but of course, all the dozens of subgenres. So we could look at those tools and think, how can we use these free and openly available tools? Um, another kind of big genre of tools that I think is uh, really underutilized are timeline and alternative presentation tools. So one is called Sutori, um, which you can create a timeline and then turn that into an interactive presentation. Another is called ThingLink, which um, kind of allows you to import an image or a video and then add annotations to it. So any, any of these tools, even the freemium models of those tools, if your district will allow the students to sign in with their Google sign-on or their Microsoft sign-on, uh, chances are they're still going to be FERPA and COPA compliant, and they're going to allow the kids a different uh, type of composing experience. So those are a few that come to mind in some ways to possibly talk with your tech director or uh, curriculum director or superintendent. Yeah, sorry. Sorry to throw the ugly legal one at you right away, but I know plenty of teachers, myself included, who hear about that a lot. So that's always like the first thing we have to do in my district is to vet the technology. So at least we do have that process. So I'm lucky in that way. But um, so thinking, oh, there was something. I'm curious, you mentioned a museum kiosk and that that just struck me as something different than what I usually hear in terms of projects. Um, I'm gonna come back to the idea of the choose your own adventure as well, but tell me a little bit about that museum kiosk and kind of maybe some examples where that's been done or I, I just, I don't have an image of that in my head. So trying to figure out what that'd be like. Sure. sure. So, you know, if we imagine the typical slide deck presentation, right? You have slide one with the title and your name on it and maybe a picture and then slide two tells you a little more information and slide three. And you go through that in a very linear fashion and it's sequential. And there's really not much expectation on the viewer of the slide deck presentation because you as the presenter, you're standing there and talking while they're listening, right? That is the classic model of death by PowerPoint. Um, so what we're really trying to do is say, what are the affordances within this tool that allows us to do things that would be interactive and creative and really employ those new literacies? So if you think about, um, you've probably gone to a museum, that's where I would most typically see these things. Although, of course, now they're in airports and shopping malls and wherever else. You know, you click on something and it takes you to another page and then you interact with this and then you interact with that. I think I like the idea of the museum kiosk because usually you click on something and more information pops up or it takes you to another page about this historical figure or this piece of artwork or this artifact. And what we can do in PowerPoint or Google Slides is teach our students like just a couple of very simple things. One is how to use transitions effectively, like where you click on something and then something appears on screen or quickly fade, you know, pops in or fades in or you know, swipes and moves to the next slide. So using those transition tools, but then also just hyperlinking. Okay, so you're gonna have your main page and let's say 
uh, I don't know, uh, for sake of argument, I'll just choose a novel I used to teach, which was The Giver. You're going to make a museum kiosk um, book report about The Giver. And on the first page, you'd have Jonas and The Giver and Jonas's parents and maybe a few other people from the community. And you could click on each one of them. And then that would take you deeper into the slide deck. But for the viewer who's viewing the slide deck in full screen, they don't know that you just skip from slide one to slide 22. They're just seeing this as this continual kiosk-like experience. So that's a that's a um, model of what I would say. Let's take the tools that we have access to and let's just try, try to reconfigure them in a creative way and, and engage those digital literacies. I like that. Well, I'm thinking even, you know, adding to that nowadays with the fact that you can make your Google Slides automatically read like you can have an audio clip that goes with it and set it to as soon as it goes to that slide it automatically reads so you could have your kids practicing reading you know some information um you know lots of different ways to utilize that so that's yeah i'm excited i'm excited to try that um <laughs> this social studies teacher will be adding that to her museum options when she does that um Okay, so Jessica, do you have any questions before I? <laughs> um, so then you had also talked about choose your own adventure, which I love, and I've played around with that a little bit. And you had mentioned using slides, which I imagine you'd use very much the same way you would use the kiosk. Um, I know I have done it with Google Sites before. So it navigates through where I created something for the kids to kind of go through an adventure and learn about something. Um, but I've also played around with it with Google Forms. Um, and I'm just, you know, thinking about using the navigation in there creatively. Like, I don't know how accessible necessarily that would be to all our elementary kids, because sometimes I find it confusing. So I guess that leads me to how, how do you go about maybe structuring, you know, yes, get in there. I love the idea. Just get in there and let them play because they know a lot of things that we don't know. But once we do have kids who are maybe struggling to figure out how to use a tool, um, you know, and I'm using that idea specifically because it's a complicated one. How would you maybe go about structuring some lessons to help kids access some of the tools and work on developing projects and showing off their understanding through some of these methods. So I think the deeper skill that we're getting at here is we want to teach you about either narrative structure or we want to teach you about how to construct an informational piece or an argument. Again, I know that's common core language, but they're, they're useful for this framing. And so first of all, just a quick footnote, if, if someone goes and does a web search and just looks for choose your own adventure, Google Slides, you would find that and you'd be able to get so many different examples um, that are up there and available. Um, and I think one of, I just quickly searched myself. The first one that came up was Alice Keeler from 2016, but I know there are lots of others out there. I was actually kind of uh, reminded of this idea uh, last year from one of our writing project uh, um, colleagues, uh, Lindsay Young, who created Choose Your Own Adventure Stories with her third graders. So then um, I think the, the next step is that, um, you know, all right, what is it that I want to teach? So you just mentioned Google Forms. So again, the branching logic in Google Forms, they could create that. I mean, there's another um, site out there, I believe it is called 
Twine, I wanted to, yeah, so there's a, there's a site called Twine that students could go in and create their own web-based stories. Um, but again, this notion that we go into our, you know, our reader experience, what are the choices that are going to be made? But how does that connect to plot development, character development? rising action where's the client how do how do we make sure everybody gets to the climax of the story or the main you know thesis in your argument at one point or another and so yes it's about the tool you're using and teaching them to use the google form or the google slide or something like that in a different more creative way but again, it's about the teaching. What is the, what is the, you know, what are the ideas that we're trying to teach you about narrative structure or about plot development or about characters or, or alternatively about following instructions and in a how-to manual or how we want to have you build an argument. So I think as long as we, and this is, again, this is where the, this goes back to my point earlier. We as teachers know that stuff, right? We know, we know how to help kids put ideas into order cause and effect, problem solution, you know, this rising action, falling action. They're going to figure out how to click all the buttons. Uh, we just need to help them kind of be expressing themselves, adding more details, making sure they're fully explaining all their ideas. Um, and then it's kind of a combination of both of us working together. You know, you're using this tech tool, you're doing something creative, and maybe a little subversively, I'm also teaching you about the things I need to meet in terms of my content standards. <laughs> But I love that you took that back to content standards on Common Core and, you know, really thinking about, you know, the reader's experience and, you know, your rising action and all those parts that might go into a story. Because I think, I think that helps many of us as teachers when we can go, okay, yes, this is what I know. And two, really, it's just about kids using a tool, but if if our focus is not on our content because i think some people are like we can't do it because the energy and the focus is not on the content and what we should be spending our time teaching but you just kind of very succinctly explained that no it always goes back to what we're trying to teach and it's not about teaching the tech that 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 will come <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Well, just a quick footnote on that. I would just say that, again, you're the expert in the room in the discipline. So as you, you keep tying these conversations back, you know, what is it that you're able to offer to students? Because this is the other joke I'll say sometimes in workshops, like both literally as well as figuratively, uh, you know, our students know how to push the buttons, right? They're going to they're gonna figure out how to push the button in Google Slides to make a hyperlink appear or to have an image come in from the side. Uh, but they're also going to annoy us because they're not going to be talking about narrative structure or building an effective academic argument. So that's where we step in and say, oh, well, hey, that's really cool that you can do that. And that could add value to your overall narrative. Let's think about this. Um, have you told enough about your character, though, so far? Do you think that anybody really wants to find out what's going to happen to your character in the story by clicking option A or option B? I don't really feel emotionally invested in your character. What might you do to add some more depth to your character? So those are the conversations that you have in those conferences. And that, you know, that would be a narrative. But of course, that could happen in other forms of writing, too. Okay, so thinking about scaffolding some of those things and supporting students, obviously the conversations are powerful and I love that. Is there, 
a benefit as well to doing some non-digital, you know, using some um, graphic organizers or some other tools to help support that process as you're working through developing that. Um, are there some that you've used or looked at as you're kind of guiding kids through this and helping them with those conversations and stopping and thinking about what they're doing as they use the tech? Absolutely. I think there are very good reasons at many times to say, hey, take that phone and set that down on the table, um, close that laptop lid. We're going to step away from the tech for a moment because what we really want to talk about, again, is rising action and bringing your story to a climax that's going to, you know, come to a, you know, an interesting point where your reader will want to continue. Um, we want to think about adding evidence to really support your argument. And you know what? You're going to build the website. That that's that's the long term goal. We looked at an example. We deconstructed a mentor text, but now we're going to close that lid, and let's think about problem solution or cause and effect structures. Let's map this out. Let's print out some storyboards here, and let's actually draw on the storyboards so we can then go back before we create our uh, public service announcement or our digital story. And I think that sometimes, um, you know. So let's be honest, it's a carrot and stick thing, right? Like, hey, kids, we get to open the computers back up soon. <laughs> uh, but right now we're going to do this. But also, you know, I think that sometimes we we really, it's the classic problem, right, of the kid who only wrote the essay in, you know, the word processor and then goes, oh, I have to make a rough draft and then goes and misspells five things and, and prints off that version too. I don't know that that happens anymore. It used to be a thing. Maybe it's not anymore. I don't know. But it's this idea that, yeah, you could. You could stick in Google Slides and compose your whole choose your own adventure story in Google Slides. But there's value in actually stepping away from it and wrapping your mind around it from a different perspective and just putting your ideas out on paper or in a different format. So again, we have crowded curricula, um, crowded classrooms. There's not a lot of time. There's not a lot of space, I know. I understand. I feel that in my own classes uh, at the undergraduate and graduate level. And it, it's been many years since I've been standing in front of a middle school or high school classroom. So I know I don't even feel the pressures that everyone's feeling today from what I felt them in my own career at that point. But sometimes we just have to do it. We just have to like take that mental break and step away and say, we're going to do this other thing so we can be better at you know what we're going to do later. Um, I've heard that kind of the go slow to go fast type of mantra, and I think there's some value in that. I was thinking it before you said it, so I agree. Go slow to go fast, and um, moving away from maybe some of the products. Um, and just thinking about some of the technological literacies and even taking some of those offline. Um, I think back to something that I used to do when I taught sixth grade science, which has been a few years ago now, but um, kind of by luck, I Googled something that I was having them, they were going to do a research project on, and the sites that came up were just like perfectly terrible. And so I actually like screenshotted, printed it, and I had kids look through and rank which link would you click on first. And we kind of went through the process of how do you evaluate links that you click on? So that's a specific literacy that I saw 
that my, you know, sixth grade scientists needed to know. Um, what are some other places where you think, you know, maybe it's not in our standards per se, but if we're going to teach research or we're going to teach, you know, some of these other literacy skills, what are some places digitally that we need to address that maybe we're not thinking about yet? Yeah, I would pick right up on what you just said about source evaluation and this idea of um, lateral reading that has come out of the work of Sam Weinberg and the Stanford History Education Group. Um, it's one thing to have your checklist and kind of go, oh yeah, I can look at the about page and I can look at this. And yeah, this, I mean, it's a clean design. The website there yeah, looks all credible, but it's another thing to open up another tab and say, let me find out about that site. What are other people saying about that site? Which, you know, say what you will, Wikipedia, does actually usually have pretty good, clear, succinct summaries about some of these sites. So if you, you know, so I'm always reminded of, um, and I will probably get the names wrong as I'm saying them out loud, I could look them up really quickly, but the American Academy of Pediatrics, I believe, is the longstanding, you know, body of, you know, pediatricians. And then there's the American College of Pediatrics, which is the what is a thinly veiled, um, you know, anti-LGBTQ hate group um, because they are the ones that will say things about, you know, no uh, same-sex couple should, you know, raise adopted children and, you know, no, no gender-affirming therapies are appropriate. Their website looks great, right? Like, you know, this is, hey, look, hey, American College and PDA, wow, that looks really, you know, it looks credible. They have a logo, they've got videos, they've got all this stuff. But then you open up another Google page and you start searching in Wikipedia, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who tracks hate groups, um, and any number of other source watch type places will go, oh, yeah, that's not such a good place. But until you, because our, this is what I think the checklists try to do, but don't get to, is that it's really tough to unpack ideology. Like we can look at a website and we can even kind of go, Hmm, that looks kind of, eh, I don't know. Eh, eh, all right, it looks fine. Until we start teaching kids about the words and phrases and, you know, some might call it dog whistling or other types of things, like we've got we've to get to that level as we teach those skills. So there's that building off what you just said. And then I would also say, you know, just more broadly, as we think about digital literacies, how do we take any one, so this goes back to that sender message receiver point. How do we take any one message and you as sender might encode that message in half a dozen different ways? Yes, one of those ways is gonna be your full five page double-spaced APA style research paper. And yet, we also might want you to create a blog post that's only three paragraphs long. And we might also want you to create a short one minute public service announcement style video. And we might also want you to create a series of three uh, social media posts that have an image and a hashtag and very brief information leading people to your video or to your website. And we might also want you to create a slide deck or a museum kiosk as the case might be, or a timeline or something like that. So how do we get kids to think expansively about I'm making an argument or I'm telling a story, but how do I do that across multiple spaces? Um, you know, I think Henry Jenkins called this idea like transmedia storytelling. When you look at these big movie, comic book, 
you know, card game, video game franchises, like moving across all these spaces. But I think it's this notion too for kids, whether we're talking third graders or 12th graders or college students, like how is it you're gonna package your message in different ways to meet different audiences and yet still be thoughtful, responsible, ethical, uh, creative, uh, you know, what, how are you going to do this in ways that are going to meet your audience at the point of need, but also, you know, have that critical disposition about what it is you're creating. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I completely answered your question. I guess part of it for me is just like teaching students how to take those similar messages and move them into different spaces with equal amounts of effectiveness. No, I, I thought your answer was perfect. Um, and it was nice to bring back to that what we started with, which was the sender message receiver. So we can kind of reiterate that idea. Um, and as I was listening, that also took me to, you know, some of our seventh grade ELA standards that, you know, I watched my colleagues work with this year regarding like tone and mood and, you know, thinking about as the sender, you have a tone, your receiver, receiver receives that mood and, you know, really playing around with that idea of using that message in multiple spaces, like you talked about playing around with that transmedia storytelling. Um, and so, you know, just for me, it was a good moment for me to connect with some of those words that we do see in our content standards and trying to make that connection a little bit, because I think you know, that's one of the, that's some of the work that we're going to have to do as teachers is, you know, kind of find those connections and see how those standards work in the world that we live in. Yeah. Um, oh, there was something. Getting to that idea, you were talking about thoughtful, responsible, creative, and there were a couple other great adjectives for the writing and the work that, you know, we as human beings and certainly our students need to do. Do you have, you know, maybe some examples or some thoughts on things you've seen teachers do or students do to develop that? Mm, question. Yeah, and now that I had just a moment, I also brought up that definition of literacy from NCTE where they said interconnected, dynamic, and malleable. Those are the three adjectives that I really like. Um, so yeah, great examples of teachers um, doing this kind of work. Um, so number one, uh, uh, one of my recent publications, uh, Creating Confident Writers, written with Andy Shinborn, who is a member of our Chippewa River Writing Project and is also uh, a teacher at Mount Pleasant High School in Michigan. Uh, he, he has his students look at um, a multimedia piece in the New York Times. It was one of the very first ones that came out like in 2012. Uh, called Snowfall, the Avalanche at Tunnel Creek. And they, they do kind of a critical deconstruction of, you know, that website and how it's can put together and things like that. And then he has them as a team create their final re research project for their AP literature class uh, in that same kind of vein. So they create their own Snowfall-esque kind of website analyzing a novel or a short story or something like that and they have to embed videos sometimes they find videos sometimes they create their own videos they have to create hyperlinks to additional interpretations uh, that others have offered um, they include images and 
make a, a design for the website that kind of reflects the overall theme and tone of the text. Uh, and of course, they're writing a critical analysis essay that then becomes part of the different segments of the website. So um, that's one kind of unique example that I can think of. Um, you know, I have the good fortune of working with a number of educators through the writing project. And then one of the projects we're working on this year is called Ahead of the Code. And in the Ahead of the Code project, we've been looking at different types of writing assistance technologies. So everything from plagiarism detection to grammar games to integrated grammar and spell checkers to systems where students will submit their work and then get automated scoring or do peer review of scoring. And one of the things that that group is um, kind of reminding me of is that how can we take these particular tools that we might be quote unquote expected to use like, oh, I have to do a plagiarism check on my students work to meet the school requirements, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, let's teach them about paraphrasing and summarizing and quoting and let's use this not as a punitive thing, but as a way to help them grow and become better and, and then teach them about sentence combining and teach them about paraphrasing and quoting. So that group has been really interesting. We've been thinking about how to use those different tools in more, uh, I guess, subversive or alternative ways. Um, Oh gosh, I could probably think of a few others. I, I'll, I'll pause for a moment and, and see if you have questions about any of those things so far. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking, you know, you called it subversive, but I'm, I'm just thinking like you just talked about self-assessment. Like mm -hmm. we can have our kids take their writing, take their work and put it into one of these plagiarism checking tools and they can self-assess. Hey, did I do a good job of paraphrasing? Yes or no? Like it's like you said, it's, it doesn't have to be punitive. It can be a learning opportunity and it can be an opportunity for them to, you know, look at the work that they're doing and figure it out. Cause I'm, I'm big on, yes, I'm there to guide you, but if I've done my job by the end of the year, you don't need me. You can use the tools, you can do all the things and work through it completely without me. And so, you know, I love when I can, use a tool to empower them to help themselves so i yeah i hadn't even thought of that way I thought of you know using things that way and i'm you know so i'm in middle school right now but i'm moving up to high school and i definitely foresee more um, demands that i must use you know plagiarism checking tools on my students so you just gave me a cool idea for how i can utilize that a little differently next year. So I'm happy about that. So thank you. And you mentioned the writing project. We have the Colorado writing project here and you're a part of the Chippewa River writing project. But for teachers that don't know what that is, can you kind of tell them about that? Yeah, certainly. I would encourage them to start at nwp.org, um, which is the National Writing Project site. Through that main site, you can um, get connected with the larger network. In fact, NWP just released their own new app for like social networking. I believe they're calling it the Writer's Studio. Uh, so you can probably find information about that. You could find what's your local writing project site. So as we're moving back to more face-to-face -face events, hopefully local writing projects are offering face-to-face uh, -face activities this summer and next school year. And the goal of the National Writing Project kind of comes down to this mantra of, teachers teaching teachers. 
And it's this uh, radical idea born out of uh, Berkeley in the 70s, as many things were, that rather than having professors stand and profess at teachers about how to teach writing, um, Jim Gray, who is the professor that started this, said, let's have teachers teach teachers. Like, let's share best practices. Let's be writers together. Let's give each other feedback. And let's figure out how this works. So the National Writing Project has grown over the last 40 plus years. Um, there, there's a few bumps in the road with federal funding and whatnot, but surprisingly, the network is still strong. And I would strongly encourage anyone, not only English teachers, but anyone who has any interest at all in using writing in any manner, in any discipline, kindergarten through college level teaching, you could find someone else in the writing project who is interested in the things that you are interested in. And you can probably find professional development events that are related to that as well. So definitely um, nwp.org would be the place to start and then look for a local site. Interestingly enough, I'd be curious to hear what's happening for you, but for our site now with the virtual this last year, I think we've had a bigger reach than what we would have ever expected. And for our summer institute coming up here in a few weeks, we've got teachers that are gonna join us from Tennessee, from Texas, from Illinois. Uh, it's really exciting to be able to do some of the work virtually despite all the challenges and tragedies of the pandemic. Um, this is a silver lining to the COVID cloud uh, that we're able to have our broader network continue to expand. Um, and that then just feeds back into the larger national network as well as our local site. Yeah, I'm not sure what the Colorado Writing Project is doing this summer, but I know one of the people that used to be on the executive committee of CCIRA, and she was a past conference chair, has taught some classes, and she is one of the most incredible writers I've ever met. And I tried to learn from her while she was on the executive committee, but the things that she talked about they did last summer sounded really interesting too. And I think probably especially for elementary teachers because they teach everything, writing is probably one of the toughest things for them to teach. I think everybody feels like I can read, I can do math, but not everybody is just an intuitively good writer. And so that doesn't always translate to teaching too. Yeah. So Molly, do you have any other questions? Just my usual final question. Um, so Troy, I'm curious, who are sort of some of your educational heroes, you know, people who have influenced what you do and who you've become as an instructor? Well, I really appreciate you asking that. And I'm glad you gave me a few minutes ahead of the interview to kind of think about that while we were talking together today. Um, there are so many. And so inevitably, I will forget many, but I, I will share stories of two really quickly. Uh, the first is Chris Miller, who was my uh, mentor, both officially kind of sanctioned by the school, but also quite uh, unofficially and in a friendship way when I began teaching middle school. He was the science teacher. Um, he was the one who helped me start to see what it meant to really actively center students in the classroom and listen to their voices. Uh, and um, he was also the one who gave me the nudge uh, in only the way that he could to go back to graduate school um, because I had been talking about it for a while and we were talking after school one day and I was like, well, do I apply, do I not? And he like looked me in the eye and we had done presentations and workshops together and he's like, 
man, you just don't belong here anymore. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> he kind of caught me off guard. And then, then it sunk in exactly what he was saying. And he was probably the first person to tell me that you could have a little bit wider reach beyond the four walls of your classroom. So go. And I really appreciate that gift that he gave me. And then soon after that, as I made my way back to graduate school at Michigan State, and this person has now had a tremendous career at multiple institutions, he's currently at Notre Dame, past president of NTTE, and now uh, director of the uh, Squire Office for Policy Research at NTTE, among all the other things that he does, is Ernest Morell. And I remember meeting Ernest, you know, coming like my first couple of days on back to campus. I'd been an undergraduate and I was a graduate student and I wanted to, you know, what's going on and this and that. He would take his graduate students and we'd have a weekly lunch meeting. Like we'd just go to a local um, restaurant, we'd sit around and talk, he'd give us things to read. Sometimes some of us were in his classes, sometimes we were not. Um, but he was a tremendous influence. And at the time, he taught us this way of thinking both about how we engage with texts, but also how we teach students to engage with texts and teach teachers to teach students to engage with texts. And he's kind of succinctly summarized it in a, a recent white paper that he wrote. And he, he says, you know, I, I include this idea of reading behind the text, within the text, and in front of the text. And obviously has a lot more to say about that. But every time I'm sitting down to write something that I bring that perspective as an author, I bring that perspective when I'm teaching writing or, or trying to teach reading strategies to pre-service teachers or in-service teachers. And that's just one of his many, many contributions to the field and little hidden gems. But um, I just uh, always appreciate uh, the mentorship that he provided early on as I, I transitioned from teacher to teacher educator. There are many more. I, I am just going to apologize for saying there are so many people that have influenced my, my career as a literacy educator, and I could spend the rest of our time together with the list, but it would do none of them justice. So I wanted to share those two quick stories instead. I'm sure that we all have the same feeling. We could go on and on about all of our educational heroes. Thank you so much, Troy. We have both learned so much about digital literacy today. And I know that a lot of our listeners will take these tools back and be able to implement them in the classroom. And we're excited to see you at CCIRA in February and for your book to come out in November. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Molly. Thanks for listening to CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. To find out more about CCIRA, go to CCIRA.org. On CCIRA.org, you can join as a member or find great resources like our professional development blog, which posts every Tuesday and has a variety of guest writers on an awesome selection of topics. CCIRA is a professional organization of educators and community members dedicated to the promotion and advancement of literacy. We also have a Twitter account at Colorado Reading. You can find us on Instagram at CCIRA underscore Colorado Reading. Or you can find us on Facebook where we also have a members only group that we're trying to build. And our Facebook account is CCIRA Colorado Reading. We'd love to hear more from you. And again, if you're looking for new content, please send any questions or things you'd be interested in seeing from CCIRA to CCIRAvideo at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.